If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's a few in the back that you can go and get if there's not one in front of you, but we will have the text up on the screen later on in the sermon as we dive right into each verse. And so don't get too nervous. Our text this morning is Colossians 1, verses 24 through 27. If you're visiting with us, you should know that we've just been going verse by verse through the book of Colossians, and we're in a series that we call Deeper. We're going deeper in the Christian faith, deeper in Christ, deeper in the gospel. And today's title is Deeper in Gospel Advancement. Deeper in Gospel Advancement. The Holy Spirit is calling us to go deeper in our conviction to advance the gospel no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the cost to our lives may be. So I want to read verses 24 through 27. Paul says to the church, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, there are many problems in the evangelical church today. And I want to address just one of them to prepare us to appreciate this text that we're about to study. Over the last four or five decades in the American church, we have come to believe that a local church exists to affirm our personal convictions, to cater to our personal desires and to serve our personal priorities. And consequently, we measure the legitimacy of a church by how much it agrees with our convictions, how much it agrees with our priorities, how much it agrees with our our desires. And I just want to say to you at the outset that that is not why the church exists. In her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Rosaria Butterfield addresses this problem uh, with great honesty. If you've never heard of Rosaria Butterfield, I encourage you to pick up the book, The Secret Converts, I mean, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It is an amazing story of redemption. But she and her husband, Kent, were church planters in the early part of their marriage. And while they were trying to build the church from just from scratch, really, they had people who would get really excited about being a part of the ministry, and then they would be there for a while, and then they would leave. And they would tell Rosaria and Kent that we're leaving because we lack fellowship. We lack fellowship. And so I want to read to you her assessment of that statement, we lack fellowship. Now these are all the quotes of Rosaria Butterfield. Over the years, I've contemplated what it really means to lack fellowship, at least as it regards the families that showed immediate excitement and then a changed heart. This is what lacking fellowship means. It means that the family needs to be in a church made up of people who are just like they are, who raise their children using the same child-rearing methods, 
who take the same stances on birth control, schooling, voting, breastfeeding, dress codes, white flour, white sugar, gluten, childhood immunizations, the observance of secular and religious holidays. I'll continue to read. These are her quotes. We encountered families who feared diversity with a primal fear. They often told us that they didn't want to confuse their children by exposing them to differences in parenting standards among Christians. I suspect that they feared that deviation from their rules might provide a window for children to see how truly diverse the world is. And that temptation might lead them astray. Over and over and over again, I have heard this line of thinking from the fearful and the faith struggling. Now here's, she's continuing here. And this gets to the point. We in the church tend to be more fearful of the sin in the world than of the sin in our own hearts. Why is that? Here is what I think, she says. I believe that there is no greater enemy to vital, life-breathing faith than insisting on cultural sameness. I'm going to read that one again. I believe that there is no greater enemy to vital, life-breathing faith than insisting on cultural sameness. When fear rules your theology, God is nowhere to be found in your paradigm, no matter how many Bible verses you tack on to it. End quote. I want to make it clear that the goal and purpose of Redeemer Church is not cultural sameness. It is not the uniformity of convictions. The goal of Redeemer Church is the glory of God and the joy of all people. It is shining a bright light on the excellence and beauty of God who is Creator and Redeemer. And in doing so, we bring constant inner delight to people who see the glory of God. And the only way to do that is through the advancement of the gospel. That's the only way. I'll tell you, the glory of God and the joy of all people is accomplished through advancing the gospel. And it is nothing less than that, and it is also nothing more than that. It is only the gospel that can defeat guilt. It is only the gospel that can destroy shame. It is only the gospel that can effectively deal with the most traumatic experiences in life. I can't come to you and bring to you my convictions about this area over here when you're dealing with your traumatic experiences in life and expect my conviction over here to help you. But I can bring the gospel that God loves you, that He has a plan for you, that He wants to redeem your circumstances through the powerful working of the cross of Jesus Christ, and that can change your whole perspective. Now, I want to bring a personal testimony to you that is trite, but I, I want to use it to make uh, a point, this, this point. Um, I have a personal conviction that I do not eat hamburgers from McDonald's. <laughs> I figured I would get one of those, at least. Okay, I have not eaten a McDonald's hamburger in probably over 10 years. And I have a, a variety of reasons for that, all right? But almost none of you, or maybe none of you knew 
that about me until I just told you that statement. All right? Now, why did you not know that about me if that is a priority of mine and a conviction of mine? Because it's not something that I prioritize in my relationships. It's not something that I prioritize in my gospel ministry. When I go out and knock on doors in the friendship community, or I go and share the gospel with someone at Starbucks, I don't give them the gospel, the good news of salvation through the person and work of Jesus, plus, hey, it would be really good if you didn't eat hamburgers at McDonald's. I don't have the message that, listen, this is the gospel. It will redeem you. But if you really want the abundant life of Jesus, then stop going to Mickey D's. That is, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's not the gospel plus this. It's just the gospel. Now, why don't I do that? Why don't I tack on the McDonald's abstination or abstainment to, uh, to the gospel? Well, number one, I don't believe that it's necessary. Like, I, I really believe that you can have the abundant life of Jesus and eat a McDonald's hamburger every day of your life. I really believe that. I don't do it, but I think you could. But number two, I love the people at McDonald's. I love the cooks. I love the associates. I love the managers. And I love the people who love McDonald's hamburgers. And so I'm not going to erect a roadblock. I'm not going to erect an obstacle for the advancement of the gospel because when I walk in McDonald's, which is frequently to study, to use their Wi-Fi, or to grab a large sweet tea for a dollar plus 10 cents tax in Oxford, all right, I go there. I go there frequently, and I talk to the associates. I talk to the people who are cleaning the tables, and I want to reach them with the gospel. And so I don't tell them that I don't eat their hamburgers. I want to advance the gospel, and I want McDonald's employees, owners, and patrons to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want them to be saved, I want them to be baptized, and I want them to be plugged into Redeemer Church as gospel-functioning people who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ and His cross. Now, this is, this is something else I'm going to tell you about this. Um, my pastoral goal will never be to get all of Redeemer Church not to eat hamburgers, uh, uh, McDonald's hamburgers. That will never be my goal. My goal will always be to preach the glory of God and the joy of all people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, if that guy that I'm trying to reach for the gospel at McDonald's has me over to his house one night for supper, I say, absolutely, I want to come. I'm trying to advance the gospel in his life. And we sit down for supper, and he provides to me a, ham a hamburger from McDonald's, you know what I'm probably going to do? I'm going to eat it, even though I hadn't had it in 10 years. Why? Because I don't want to create an obstacle for the gospel because I'm trying to get him the good news of salvation. Now, I have other strong convictions that most of you don't really know anything about. I do. You, you don't know a lot of things about my personal convictions, but um, I don't want to make my convictions in any way uh, an obstacle to obscure the gospel. But I want to be very clear before we move right into this text. I am not anti-conviction. Very important for you to know. I'm not anti-conviction. Listen, I am very pro-conviction. Very pro-conviction. Listen, the gospel produces convictions in us. And so I'm not telling you to be a milquetoast Christian. 
I'm not telling you to be a Christian who just has no particular convictions or, or desires or strong thoughts about any issue. This is what I am. I am anti-convictions when they produce obstacles for gospel advancement. That's all I am. And I think that's all uh, Paul is. Now, that is very relevant stuff to where our church is today. That is. But how relevant is it to verses 24, 25, 26, and 27? And I think what we'll see is we'll see the relevance unfold as we look at the text. So you can have your open Bibles. If you've got a notebook, have that out ready for your pen. I want to explain 24 to 27 to you and Paul's attitude as a servant of the church. And as we look at Paul's attitude, what then we're going to see is what our attitude should be regarding the advancement of the gospel and regarding ourselves as servants of the church, just like Paul was. All right, so take a quick break. I want to tell you the big idea of 24 through 27. This is what Paul's saying. I'm, he's saying, I'm suffering for bringing the fullness and the richness of the gospel message to you. I'm suffering because of that. And I rejoice in that because you now have Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the big idea. I'm suffering for bringing the fullness and the richness of the gospel to you, but I rejoice in it because the gospel is doing its work. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so I want to explain this text using four headings right here. Four headings. All right, the first heading is misery. Misery. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church. And so just, just keep your eyes down on verse 24. Because the first question that I ask in verse 24 is, in what ways did Paul suffer? Like, what are you talking about your sufferings here, Paul? Well, he suffered in really two ways. He, he suffered the attacks of those he sought to reach with the gospel, and then he sought the wrath of the Jews who were trying to keep him from sharing the gospel with people. Okay? Kind of two prone attacks and, and wrath there. But, but currently, Paul writes this letter from prison. And he's in prison because he's been preaching the gospel and he's in jail for preaching that gospel. But ever since the Lord saved Paul, he has been suffering for the advancement of the gospel. Now listen to what Paul says about himself and his sufferings in 2 Corinthians. Just listen. He's been imprisoned many times, beaten countless times, scourged with a whip five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned and left for dead one time, shipwrecked three times, in danger everywhere he went, he lived in toil and hardship, suffering through many sleepless nights. He went days without food and water, and he did all of this to advance the gospel in the world and in the church. And not only that, he experienced relational conflict with people inside the church. Do you remember when he and Mark parted ways? Why? Because Paul wanted to advance the gospel and Mark wanted to retreat. Do you remember when Paul and Peter got into it with one another? Why did, I mean, these are super apostles. Why do they get into it? Because Paul's wanting to advance the gospel among the Gentiles and among the Jews in a way that shows the liberating effect of the good news of salvation, and Peter was trying to restrict that. And so they get into a little tussle, and they get into an argument. Why? And then Paul suffers that broken relationship for just a little bit. Why? Because he's trying to advance the gospel. He, 
he is, uh, he's in Athens and is essentially just run out of town and he suffers uh, there because uh, the philosophers and, the, the, and the, the professors and all just laugh at him and mock at him and ridicule him for this message of the cross that he preaches to them. He, he suffers constantly, but uh, through all of that, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And so the next question that I ask is, as we just look down here, is how exactly are Paul's sufferings for the Colossians' sake? Had Paul planted the church in Colossae? No. Had Paul been to the church in Colossae? No. He's never even met them. Paul was called by the Lord to advance the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Colossian church was primarily a Gentile church. And so he preached a message of inclusion, Paul did. In other words, Paul said, Gentiles are included in the saving work of the gospel. Jesus Christ is for you too, Paul said, everywhere that he went. He loves you. He wants to rescue you. He wants to give you all the blessings of the new covenant, Paul would say. And this was not popular. It was not popular among anyone. And yet Paul preached it for the sake of people like the Colossians. Now, look down at the text again. Does Paul say, I'm miserable because of my sufferings for your sake. No, he says, I rejoice. I rejoice. This is counterintuitive. I mean, uh, David, if, uh, if I walk into your house, you invited me over, and I walk into your house, and you say, Ryan, how's it going? And the first thing I say is, man, I'm rejoicing today, David. I'm rejoicing. You're like, You're like well, great, man, what's going on? suffering you're like what that's counterintuitive right the the next words out of my mouth you're you're hoping to hear something great has been accomplished somebody's gotten saved one of my boys did something well something like that not I'm suffering that is counterintuitive we don't think in terms like that but that's exactly what Paul says all right but then look down at the text to make matters more counterintuitive Paul is suffering for himself For himself, is that right? No, for the church. For the church, and he rejoices. Now, guys, this is super counterintuitive. And and I think we have to ask the question, is this some type of uh, pie-in-the-sky platitude that I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, or is it the real thing? Like, does Paul really rejoice? And if he does really rejoice in his sufferings for the sake of the church, then how is that even possible? How is it possible? And this is what I want to tell you, and this is absolutely critical. This makes the connection to how I introduced the sermon. The advancement of the gospel and the penetration of gospel power into the hearts of people is the primary aim and goal of Paul's life. The advancement of the gospel and the penetration of gospel power into the hearts and lives of people everywhere is Paul's whole reason for living this whole reason and so and so if paul gets the gospel to anthony and carolyn taylor and they are totally transformed by it and they now have joy that they never knew they now have peace that they never knew they now had hope that they never knew paul is saying i rejoice that i'm in prison for that sake because nothing makes me more happy than anthony and carolyn going from hopelessness to hope From lack of peace to peace. From lack of joy to joy. That thrills my soul. 
So that, that's, his, that's his concept there. That's what he's trying to get across. Now, look, look down at verse 24, the second part of that verse. He says, now, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, this has been a problematic text for a lot of people for a lot of years, all right? And so we need to ask the question, um, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? There's a two-part answer to that question. The first part is nothing is lacking, not one thing. When it concerns His atonement for sins, nothing is lacking. He paid the full price for sins on the cross. If you can remember, His hands are stretched out. They're nailed. His feet are nailed. Blood is flowing from His body all over the place. He is bearing the weight of God's righteous wrath against sinners upon Himself. And at the very end, He cried out, It is finished. He paid every single price that had to be paid for mine and your sins. Yes, amen. Romans 6.10, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Once for all. So nothing is lacking in his suffering for sins from a divine perspective. But the second part of the answer is that there's a lot that's lacking in Christ's afflictions. When it concerns the hostility and hatred that Satan and the world have for Jesus Christ. Their hatred for His work on the cross at Calvary. Their hatred for what He accomplished in the, with the empty tomb and rising from the dead. They hate Jesus Christ. And so there are plenty more afflictions that are, that are going to be meted out upon people in this world who claim Jesus Christ because His physical body is not here anymore. He's not present. We are. And so the afflictions that they want to press upon Jesus Christ, they press upon us because we are people of the cross. If you just ask Stephen who preached the gospel and was stoned to death, he would affirm exactly what Paul says. If you ask every one of the apostles who died violent deaths because of the gospel, they would affirm what Paul says. If you would ask John Huss, who was burned alive at the stake for the sake of the gospel, he would say, yes, Paul is right. If you were to ask Martin Luther, who suffered for preaching the gospel ever since he, he nailed the 95 theses on the church of the Wittenberg door, then you would, you would hear him say, Paul is exactly right. Now, for the risk of redundancy, um, I, I want to show you a, a video that would bring this, this point uh, very uh, clear to us. And both Mark mentioned it in his prayer, thank you Mark, and also Phil let us off. I want to show you this video, of, um, and listen, there's nothing here that's going to be, uh, that you're, you don't want your kids to see. But I want us to understand what it means to bear the afflictions of Jesus Christ in today's world. Just think if their names were like George, Mark, Daniel, David, Fred. Personalize it a little more because every one of these men were either dads, sons, brothers. They were, they were workers, they were uncles. 
And every one of them this week filled up the afflictions of Christ. Because they said the gospel is the most important thing in our lives. Nothing is more important than that. And we're going to advance the gospel by not denying our Savior who bled and died for us. Okay, finish it out. So the afflictions of Christ continue to this very day whenever believers deny themselves and take up their cross and follow after Jesus. That's when afflictions happen. And we're filling up in our bodies exactly what Christ endured because the people of this world and Satan himself hate Jesus Christ and all that He stands for and they come after us. And I want to tell you though, it's not, it's not to no end. It, it, it's not to no purpose and to no ultimate goal because Paul would tell you, just like he's telling us in verses 24 to 27, that as I fill up the afflictions of Christ in my body, you are being strengthened. You are being encouraged. You, you are being solidified in the gospel faith. I want to tell you guys, this week, this week, I read about what happened on Monday. I read about it, I absorbed it, and I looked at those men, and I tried to look at their faces and, and understand where they were as Christians, as people of the cross. And, and, and what I said was, Lord, Lord, Christ was everything to those men. Is He everything to me? The advancement of the gospel was more important than the advancement of their own physical lives. Is the advancement of the gospel more important to me than the advancement of my own life? And God used their deaths and their afflictions to drive me to a more Christ-centered, cross-focused aspect of my whole life and my ministry. That's how the afflictions of Christ go to edify and build up the church of Jesus Christ, even in a lot bigger ways than that as well. But this is what Paul is saying. In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. And so the afflictions aren't for Christ, and they're not for personal salvation, but what they are for, for the building up of the church and the advancement of the gospel. Okay, so that's misery. That's misery. It's suffering. It's difficulty to go to. Now, these next three will flow really, really smoothly. The next heading is ministry. Ministry. He's talking about the church. He says, this church I became a minister of according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Eyes on the text here. He says, of which I became a what, y'all? A minister. Say that again. A what? A minister. We hear the term minister and we think authoritative, a preacher, a word of God guy that has a, a lot of sway with the, with the people of God. That's what we hear, when we, heard, when we hear the word minister. The word minister means servant. 
It's exactly what it means. It, the same word that's used right here is what we use to describe Mark Holden and Wayne Atchison. Servants. Diakonos. All right? There, there's, no, there's no inherent authoritative position. The only authority comes in the, in the, in the uh, actualization of service and love and care and ministry to other people. And that's what Paul's saying. Listen, I'm not some guy who's standing over y'all with all this great authority. I'm not, an, I'm not a dictator. I'm not an authoritarian. I'm not the president of Christianity. I'm a servant. I'm a servant. I have a ministry. And my ministry is to serve you in the advancement of the gospel in your lives, in your hearts, in your families, in your community, and in this world. That is my role. And so he's saying, look down at verse 25. Let me me paraphrase what he says right here. God sovereignly appointed me to be a servant of the church to make the gospel fully known to you. That's what he's saying. Now, if you've got your Bibles open, I want you to hold your place in Colossians and turn back to 2 Corinthians. Now, this is a critical, critical principle. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because what I want you to see is that personal reconciliation with God produces passionate ministry to other people. And that's what he's saying. He said, I've become a minister. I didn't get saved on the Damascus Road and just revel in my redemption for the rest of my life. I didn't go, I didn't go and become a professor of theology in Jerusalem around the temple because I was a good teacher. I had a lot of theological knowledge. I could use it in order to just teach the people who were really theologically and doctrinally oriented. No, instead, I just used my life for the rest of my life to preach the gospel here and there and everywhere so that the powerful gospel would advance all over the Roman Empire. Now, why why does he do that? Why does Paul do that? Let's begin in verse 16. I want you to see the connection between personal reconciliation and a ministry of reconciliation. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's one of our favorite verses in all the Bible in church. And it's great. Because it's all about personal reconciliation. Adam, I can say the old is gone and the new has come in your life. Mr. Ingram, the old is gone and the new has come. Rejoice. Praise God for personal reconciliation. But it doesn't end there. Check it out. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. Period. End of story. Next chapter. Is that right? No. He, He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message, the word, the communication, the declaration of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We'll read, the, we'll read our famous last verse too. For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you see how there is a very personal dimension to reconciliation on the cross, but it doesn't stop there? 
Anthony and Carolyn, Shane, it doesn't matter, Scott, you have reconciliation with God through the work of the cross, but it doesn't stop there. You just don't live there. You advance the gospel. You call other people to be reconciled with God because that is the whole point of you staying on planet Earth and not immediately going to heaven. And so, we have a message of reconciliation because we have a Messiah who's reconciled us personally. That's the ministry that he's saying. Now go back to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. That's the ministry that he has and he would be calling us to the same. The third heading under this text is mystery. So we've got misery and then ministry and now mystery. Mystery. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. Now, I want to do something here Bible study-wise so that y'all can make the connection with me. Okay, look back up at verse 25. He says, I've been called to make the Word of God fully known. The Word of God. Then verse 26, he calls the Word of God what? The mystery. And then look down at verse 27. He says, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this what? mystery and then he says this is what the mystery is what is it christ in you and then he explains christ in you by saying the hope of glory all right and so if you just look down at the text he calls it the word of god the mystery the mystery and christ in you all of that is the same thing it's all the same thing let's don't separate the concept of the word of god from the mystery or the mystery from Christ in you. It's all the same thing. Okay, so so this is what he says. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. One question here. What is the mystery that was once hidden, but now revealed? What is that? It's the hope of the gospel to the nations. That's what the mystery is. The hope of the gospel to the nations. One of the things, really helpful things that I learned in seminary, is that when you see Paul using the word mystery... He's always talking about something that was once concealed, but now revealed. Once concealed, but now revealed. And in this case, he's talking about the gospel going forth to the nations, to the Gentiles. And we'll see that very clearly. Now, did kind of a scan through the Old Testament this week, and I just want to read to you some things that God says about the nations, about the Gentiles, okay? This will go quick. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, Abram, in you will all the nations be blessed. In Psalm 67, the psalmist says, Let the nations be glad. Let the nations praise you. Let the nations praise you, O Lord. In Isaiah 60, verse 3, the Lord says, Nations shall come to your light. Kings, to the brightness of your rising. Micah 4. Listen to this. The mountain of the house of the Lord, people will flow to it. Nations will come and say, let us go up to the temple. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His path. And Malachi 1, verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. From Genesis all the way to Malachi, 
Every book in the Old Testament, 39, we get this kind of this picture that one day the nations, the Gentiles, people from every tribe and every nation, red, white, yellow, black, male, female, poor, rich, are going to come and worship God at His temple. But what we don't get is how in the world is that going to happen? I mean, there are some hints. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, there's this prophecy about the Messiah, but we don't know, we don't get the full picture. And then all of a sudden, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is born of a virgin, fulfills all of the law, every jot and tittle, walks perfectly and obediently before His Father, lives the life that we're supposed to live. He dies the death that we deserve up on a cross. He sheds His blood. And and certainly people who had spiritual eyes to see look back at the tabernacle and they look back at the temple and they they see all of these sacrifices that have been made for generations and generations. They see all of the blood that had been spilt for generations and generations. And then they look at the cross and they see this perfect Savior shedding His blood as a perfect sacrificial atonement for sins. And then He is put in a tomb, dead and buried. And on the third day, He rises from the dead and defeats all of the forces of evil and hell and Satan and and, and essentially spits in the face of the power and pollution of sin and says, I have conquered death and hell and all of your evil forces. And He goes into heaven and He's mediating and advocating for any who would put their trust in Him. And one day He's going to return fully and finally and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is what people did not know about. It was a mystery to them. But now it's been revealed. And Paul is saying it's not just for Jews. It's for everybody that if you put your faith and your trust in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ, you will have life everlasting. That, that is the message that was a mystery that was once concealed and now it's fully revealed. And he's saying that's how the Gentiles are going to come. That's how the Gentiles. I've been made a minister to the Gentiles. And so that's the mystery. Finally, let's look at the mission. It says to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, glory is mentioned twice in this verse. Glory is a really big deal in the Bible. All right? And I want to say three things about glory. It's probably not going to be easy to take notes on it. But the first thing I want to say is that glory is a present reality. It is an existing reality. God Himself is full of glory. I mean, if if you want to understand God and you want to describe Him maybe in one word, glory would be a great word to use. That's what the Bible uses. And and glory is, is essentially His unchanging essence. His unchanging essence. In other words, God is love, merciful, gracious, kind, compassionate. He is holy and righteous. He is the truth. He never lies. He is fully consistent with all of His attributes all of the time. He never wavers. He never shifts. He is who He is. He is beautiful and excellent all at the same time. He always has been. He always is. And He always will be full of glory. That's God. 
But then the second aspect of glory is that we see the manifestation of glory in the person of Jesus Christ. John says it. John says that we looked upon the Word of God, that is Jesus Christ, and we beheld His glory full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. We see the glory of God most manifestly and most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when we see Him loving, miserable people, we see God's glory. When we see Him preaching the truth about the gospel, we see His glory. When we see Him taking upon Himself the sins of humanity, we see His glory. When we see Him rising from the dead, we see His glory. When we see Him in resplendent honor and prestige in in the temple of God, sitting at the right hand of God, we see His glory. He is the manifestation of the glory of God. And one day we'll be able to see it. And that's the third aspect of His glory. It is the hope. It is the future hope that not only will we see the glory of God, we will actually partake in that glory. Do you know that there is, a, there is a, an aspect of the glory of God that you and I are going to be able to take part in? We're going to get to be able to have on us and inside of us the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the, 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 the wonder of God, the truth of God. We're, we're going to be, behold and embody His glory. And that is what Paul is saying when he says this mystery results in the hope of glory. Jesus Christ is your hope of receiving and experiencing the glory of God one day. And so I use the word mission. I use the word mission here because he says this isn't just for Jews. This isn't just for Abraham and his tightly knit family. This is for the Amias. This is for the Haynes. This is for the Marinos. This is for you. You are a Gentile. You had no hope. There was a wall that was built up. You couldn't get into the commonwealth of Israel. You couldn't get into the blessings of the presence of God. There was a temple and there was a holy of holies right there and you, you had no shot. The only shot, the, only, the closest you could get was that outside wall where you could look just a little bit and kind of see where a temple might be. But you had no hope of ever getting to see the presence of the glory of God. And now Paul is saying... You don't have to go try to look for the presence of God and the glory of God. He dwells right inside of you. Christ lives in you because of the gospel. That fires me up. And that's why Paul goes everywhere he possibly can go to preach that glorious message because anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ has the hope of glory. Okay. I'm going to give you three applications. If you want to be a servant of the church, if you want to be a servant of the church like Paul was a servant of the church, and that's what he's saying here. And hey, this is very important. This is the only place where Paul indicates that he's a servant of the church. He's normally a servant of Christ. He's a minister of the gospel. But here he's a servant of the church, okay? If you want to be a servant of the church, in the same vein and for the same reasons that Paul does, let me give you three instructions. First, give thanks for the gospel workers who've toiled on your behalf. Give thanks for the gospel workers who have toiled on your behalf. And I I have a list a mile long. My mom and dad had me in church every Sunday morning. They worked on my behalf. Karen Maxwell was my Sunday school teacher. 
And she would come every Sunday morning with an amazing presentation and bringing the gospel to it. It might be a a felt pad and she's got uh, things that she's sticking up on it. Or it might be the little bracelet that has all the various colors that talks about sin and holiness and all of that. Or it might be a puppet show that she puts together. But for years, Karen Maxwell taught me the gospel as I sat as a 5-year-old, a 6-year-old, a 7-year-old, and an 8-year-old. Mike Maddox was my youth leader when I was 12 and 13 and 14 years old. And after youth group, I would get in his car and he would take me home. And, and instead of taking a direct route all the way to 41 Indian Hill Circle, Mike Maddox would go around the world before he got to my house so that we could talk about the gospel and gospel encouragement for 15 or 20 minutes. Mark Jackson was the guy who lived in Montgomery and who came, drove two hours on a Thursday afternoon into a football locker room and preached the gospel for 40 minutes, and my eyes were this big, and my heart was pounding as he told me about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He toiled for my, for my well-being. I get to college, and my coach, Lee Hall, and his wife, Leanne, open up the doors of their gospel, uh, open up the doors of their house, open up the Bible, and begin to reveal to me the gospel of Jesus Christ in their living room as I'm playing for him as a player in college. I'm riding back and forth from Ellick City to Montgomery and from Montgomery to Ellick City to see my girlfriend and soon-to-be engaged fiancé. And I'm listening to the radio and John MacArthur is preaching an expositional message from the Bible and I'm listening to myself and I'm listening to him preach this gospel. I'm like, that is powerful stuff. And then not too long after that, I buy this book for $2.99 called Desiring God. And it absolutely wrecks and changes my life as I see that God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in Him. And Bob St. John pours his life and his heart into my life and into my heart so that I could be also a minister of reconciliation. And y'all, I could go on and on and on. These are people who have poured the gospel into my life so that it will be advanced for the rest of my life. Who's done that for you? Who's done it for you? Because when you begin to think about what all people have done for you and your heart and your life and your marriage and your kids, you know what that's going to do? It's going to give you the second application. It's going to give you the second application. Be a gospel worker who toils on behalf of others. Be a gospel worker who toils on behalf of others. Listen, we have a problem, and our problem is that we want to soak, and we want to listen, and we want to absorb, and we want to take in, and then we want to take our convictions, and we want to excuse our lack of going out and gospel toiling so that we can do our little convictions. And that's sin. What God wants you to do is He wants to take all the gifts and all the things that He's birthed inside of your heart and to go out and toil for other people. Toil inside this church and toil outside this church. I've got some ways that I listed. First of all, love. Love. Pursue the highest good of the people around you. Pursue them. Don't remain passive. Don't sit at the same place you always sit during the fellowship meal. Love other people. Spread yourself out. Get to know them. Look at them eye to eye. Ask them questions. This is toiling on behalf of others. Grow in wisdom. Read your Bible. 
Learn principles from Scripture so that when you're sitting with that person at the fellowship meal and you're making eye contact with them, you're able to give them the wisdom of God according to the Word of God so that you can be a blessing to them. Faith. Well, I'm going to tell you, the more you grow in faith, the more you trust Jesus Christ, the greater blessing you're going to be to the people of God and the people who need God. And I, I can't remember whether it was Joey or some other guy last week Man, they just, they stood at the door as they were leaving, and I was just standing, I, can't, I think it was Sunday afternoon or something, and, and uh, the man just said, man, I am believing God for the best. I am trusting Him. Do you know what that did for me? That encouraged me in the gospel. I needed somebody with faith to communicate their faith to me to advance the gospel in my heart and therefore in my life. Faith is a huge way to serve others. Of course, teaching and preaching and counseling. We need an army. We need an army of people in this church who are going to preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't need a handful. We don't need seven or eight. We need everybody in this church who is excited about the gospel and desirous to advance it in this community, in this area, and in this world. Um, I could give you, I made a list of about 20, so I think I'll stop there. But be a gospel worker who toils on behalf of others. And so under this heading, y'all, if you would, just write the question, how can I toil for the gospel on behalf of others? How can I toil for the gospel on behalf of others? Because some of you right now are saying to yourself, I just don't have any way. There's, there's no place for me in this church. There's no way for me to really have an outlet to advance the gospel. And I would say that is not true. That is not true. You need to get alone with the Lord in prayer and ask Him how you can advance the gospel. Finally, finally, third application. Rejoice when you suffer for gospel advancement. Rejoice when you suffer for gospel advancement. Now, this is how you, you rejoice. I can't just give you that command and say, go rejoice. I, I've got to tell you how to do that, okay? So the, the first thing is you've got to change your expectations. Change your expectations. Don't, don't expect better treatment than your Savior received. Jesus taught the disciples, if this world hates me, it's also going to hate you. So change your expectations that you're going to be re received well. Second, Understand what's going on. Understand what's going on. You're seeking to advance the good news of salvation through the person and work of Jesus. The gospel doesn't, I mean, uh, the world doesn't want that message to go forward. They don't, they hate it. They hate Jesus Christ. And because you're attached, attached to Jesus, it hates you. And so understand that there is a hostility and a hatred. You're not going to knock on a door in Friendship Road to a lost person. They open it up and you say, I just would love to tell you about Jesus Christ and how He's come to save you from their sins. They're not going to drop down to their knees and say, Oh, blessed Lord Jesus, I give my soul to you. That's not... I mean, unless it's a person like the Ethiopian eunuch, that's likely not going to happen. Um, but, and it may, and we'll rejoice in that. But likely you're going to have to labor and toil and work through a lot of resistance and work through a lot of obstacles. So change your expectations. Understand what's going on. That is hostility. Embrace the honor of suffering for the gospel. And write that one down if you're taking notes. Embrace the honor of suffering for the gospel. There is no suffering more honorable than suffering for preaching the gospel. Embrace it. 
remember that this life is temporary. Remember that this life is temporary. Because I will tell you guys, if this life is all we have, I would not encourage you to come another Saturday to go out into Friendship Road and knock on doors. Don't don't ever come again because you need to spend that Saturday doing whatever you want to in your flesh. If this life is all we have. But if this life is not all we have and we have an eternity awaiting us, we have bliss and glory and excellence and love abounding, awaiting us that will never perish or never fade, I'd say make it a priority to be here every Saturday when we go knock on doors. Because this is for this long. The hope of glory never ends. Never ends. And then finally, how to rejoice when you suffer for gospel advancement. Celebrate the fact that Christ will take the gospel you preach and change lives forever. What's the long statement? Celebrate the fact that Christ will take the gospel you preach and change lives forever. What do I mean by that? I mean that there are going to be people who are not only beholding the glory of God forever, but embodying the glory of God forever because you knocked on a door and preached the gospel. Because you walked across the street to your neighbor and developed a relationship with him. Because you risked losing your job and comforted a hurting co-worker with the gospel of Jesus Christ. People's entire eternity is going to be changed from that of eternal death to that of eternal life because you preach the gospel. So rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. That is exactly why Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake because I know everything that is at stake. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. And right now, Lord, as you're working conviction and you're working ambition and motivation in our hearts, as we sing these songs, would you fan the flame of the gospel in our hearts? Would you cause it to get bigger and brighter and stronger that we will love Christ and that we will love the gospel more than we love anything else in this world. Would you do this as we sing songs to you and would you motivate us to live lives that advance the gospel no matter what the consequences or the cost may be. We ask this in the name of the Savior. Amen.